0: It's my belief that the church's calling is to bless all that is holy. And what is more holy than the mutual love between two human beings? We affirm that the nurturing and fulfilling love that same-sex couples find in their relationships is indeed one of the innumerable expressions of God's love.
1: I have to tell you that more than half of the couples I have married in these six months have raised or are still raising children. The weddings of these couples have all included mentions of love and care for their kids in direct counterpoint to the doom-and-gloom declarations of marriage equality opponents who so often tout their concern for children as a primary motivation for their desire to discriminate any time I hear this, but what about the children argument now, I want to broadcast into every living room in the country my memories of the faces of children beaming with pride and affection at the wedding ceremonies of their same-sex parents. Being present for all these truly lovely family moments has made it impossible for me to remain silent in the face of such misrepresentation of the facts. How can any of us tout the importance of family values if we aren't willing to value these loving families?
2: If our campaign now is called Standing on the Side of Love, our method might be called Go ahead and Ask, Go ahead and Tell, Just Ask, Just Tell. Like all civil rights movements, this one requires upfront, out loud, outspoken public presence. There is nothing about this work that can go without saying. We need to speak, and we need to speak as religious people, grounded, each of us in our conviction in something deeper than an elevator speech. We are called to testify.
0: I guess the point is our family really isn't so different from any other Iowa family. You know, when I'm home, we go to church together. We eat dinner. We go on vacations. But... You know, we have our hard times, too. We get in fights. Actually, my mom, Terry, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2000. It is a devastating disease that put her in a wheelchair. So we've had our struggles. Being a student at the University of Iowa, the topic of same-sex marriage comes up quite frequently in classroom discussions. The question always comes down to, well, Can gays even raise kids? The conversation gets quiet for a moment because most people don't really have an answer. And then I raise my hand and say, well, actually, I was raised by a gay couple, and I'm doing pretty well. I scored in the 99th percentile on the ACT. I'm actually an Eagle Scout. I own and operate my own small business. If I was your son, I believe I'd make you very proud. I'm not really so different from any of your children. My family really isn't so different from yours. After all, your family doesn't derive its sense of worth from being told by the state, you're married, congratulations. No, the sense of family comes from the commitment we make to each other to work through the hard times so we can enjoy the good ones. It comes from the love that binds us. That's what makes a family.
1: I returned to my car, and I did what I have done after every one of these same-sex weddings. I shut the car door, I sit there in the silence, away from all the people, and I cry. I just cry. I cry for joy for these couples finally being respected and affirmed, not despite their love, but because of it. I cry for the heartbreak that so many of them have and still will endure just for being who they are. And I cry in response to the energy and power I have experienced from being granted these precious opportunities as a UU minister to stand in a river of love and commitment To have my feet firmly planted on the muddy bottom of our shared lives as these women and men, some familiar, some previously unknown, have poured into my life and then passed me, sharing their stories, their love, and their lives, and leaving me changed as a result.
2: Rabbi Abraham Heschel taught us, a religious person is one whose greatest passion is compassion whose greatest strength is love and defiance of despair. His friend Martin Luther King Jr. added, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. So when someone asks us what Unitarian Universalists believe, or why we're speaking out on gay rights, or immigrant rights, or disability rights, or human rights, or why we bother to drag our sorry selves down to church on Sunday morning, let's tell them we are standing on the side of love we are standing on the side of love.
3: Several years ago, my partner Linda and I and our two teenage sons set off for a vacation in the Black Hills of South Dakota. From St. Paul, this is a 650 mile journey due west on Highway 90. For those of you who've been on this road trip, you can attest to the stark landscape. For most of the driving is a flat, continuous road lined by farmlands. There are miles upon miles, hours upon hours of what to the city eye appears to be nothing much. Linda and I took two-hour turns at the wheel while our boys continuously moaned and groaned. We have, after all, raised them in the Twin Cities where a half-hour drive appears to be quite a long one. I remember more than one time during this driving extravaganza where the monotony was shifted. The first time started with an influx of bugs hitting my window shield. Splat, splat, splat. My curiosity peaked. I took notice and began to look for the cause. Off to the side of the road, I saw a huge patch of sunflowers thousands of vibrant yellow flowers turning towards the sun, evoking a moment of joy, beauty, and playfulness all at once. They took on a character of a community of flowers, standing closely together, proud, glorious, and inspiring. The image was so striking that I carry it with me years later. We Unitarian Universalists can have that same effect. When we show up at a rally at the Capitol or we march in the streets in our bright yellow Standing on the Side of Love t-shirts, we often evoke the same type of an emotion from strangers. Dan Vernansky, the current executive director of Standing on the Side of Love, says that we're now known as the love people, identified in a crowd by our bright yellow t-shirts with an image of the heart and love prominently written across the front. Love people. Acting in faith, proclaiming our faith as we stand beside and among others, acting for social justice and equality. I've seen that swarm of yellow, of a yellow mass at General Assembly in 2010 when we had a public witness event in Loring Park during the Pride Festival. Were any of you there? See some heads nodding? Awesome. It was estimated that 1,500 UUs paraded from the convention center down to Lorraine Park. From the back of the stage, I had a distinct view of the yellow-shirted love people who were covering the grounds for as far as my eyes could see. The sea of yellow was not of a botanical nature, but of human nature. It was an awesome display of witness and unity for all who were present. To stand on the side of marriage equality is something that many of us as Unitarian Universalists do beyond the church walls and in the public arena. We gather publicly publicly to show our commitment to what we sang about today in the hymn, We'll Build a Land, to show our vision of a land of people so bold where justice can roll down like waters and peace like an ever-flowing stream. The Unitarian Universalist Association created Standing on the Side of Love because it reflects our core values and beliefs. Yet, standing on the side of love isn't just branded as Unitarian Universalist, because we can share the love. Love is infinite in our faith, where each person is born one more redeemer, showing up and standing up for justice is just one way we can support marriage equality. But how about the individuals who make up our denomination? Those of you sitting here today. Those who are held together by a sacred covenant with one another, who strive to nurture and embrace all who enter our doors. It's really important that we remember that for many congregations, this work can be a bit of a stretch. It doesn't seem like that so much here, but in many congregations, it can be. For most of us, we're raised in a US culture where the media, peers, family, and many faith communities fed us fear and hatred in regards to others, and especially LGBT people. I want to acknowledge that many of us carry with us some of that internalized homophobia or fear of LGBT people or being known as such. I truly believe that it's so prevalent that it's like the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's inescapable. To think that it's been in my lifetime that the lesbian, gay, bisexual people have come out of the closet and been visible. In UU congregations, visibly standing up, welcoming and embracing LGBT people has been as recent as the past few decades. I think it's really important that we remember our history when we look at other faiths struggling right now to be more inclusive. In 1984, the UUA commissioned a Common Vision Planning Committee to research, report, and make recommendations in advancing welcoming congregation programs in churches. On the Welcoming Congregation Program History website, it states that this committee found many negative attitudes, deep prejudices, and profound ignorance about bisexual, gay, and lesbian people. The non-supportive UU comments in this report were extremely hard to read and digest. They really echo the sentiments of the far-right fundamentalist of today. The UU World's 2004 cover story on same-sex marriage was also met with ambivalence. That was only eight years ago. In the mailbox section of the magazine that followed the article, Jane Greer, the UU World staff member, commented that the negative letters that they received outweighed the positive letters. In fact, one of the positive letters was mine, sparked by a request from our minister, Jan Eller-Isaacs, when she had gotten word that there were too many negative letters. It's really important to remember that not all UUs immediately Are in support of this bold demonstration of our faith and values. I think of one woman at a church where I preached earlier this summer who spoke to me about her own journey. She wept as she told me about being very homo hesitant, which I'll talk about, until a dear friend of hers came out to her and taught her that love is love. Homophobia, it's a bit of a term that sounds kind of to me like a deadly disease, and yet I think we need to make room for it in our pews and in our friendships and in our communities. And let me explain. Abigail Gardner, who wrote a book called Families Like Mine, Children of Gay Parents, Tell It Like It Is, describes a continuum of homophobia. On one end, she talks of people who are homo-hostile. They're like the Fred Phelps who come to protest with really offensive signs and believe that um, GLBT people are sinners and are going to hell. On the other side are people who really see no difference between GLBT people and themselves. There is no us, there is no them, we are all just one. In the middle is the greatest number, and she calls these the homo hesitant. It's critical that we leave space for all in our congregation and acknowledge each other's hesitancy as it emerges. But at the same time, many of us have come to Unitarian Universalism being raised in a faith community that condemned or denied our love. What happens in our open and firming congregations matters greatly. Congregations have found many concrete ways to show their acceptance and embrace of our LGBT members. One example happened years ago at Unity Church Unitarian where I'm a member. The ministers decided to rent a bus and drive to Iowa to have a number of same-sex couples legally married. My partner Linda and I had a wedding 20 years ago in San Francisco and we thought we would just wait until it was legal in Minnesota before we Um, decided to get legally married. But a week before the bus was due to take off, a couple called us, who I guess we had sort of said earlier we were going to go on the bus, and they were much dismayed by the fact that their sons would not have companions on the bus, as we had promised. So guilt-ridden, we called our sons individually into the living room. They were then 11 and 13 years old. First we called in Corbin who said he was more than willing to go on the bus and accompany his friend, Elliot. Then we called in Quentin. We asked if he would be willing to come and be a witness to the weddings of other couples. He quickly replied, no. "Mm -mm." He wasn't going to go unless we got married. And Then he added, by the way, can I wear a suit? (laughs) At which point, Linda and I sent him out of the living room, looked at each other, said, are we crazy? and called up our ministers and made an appointment to rewrite our vows. When we hopped on that bus with many couples from Unity, including our dear Ruth McKenzie and her partner Rebecca Flood, we arrived at Des Moines, Iowa, the voice you heard of Reverend Mark Stringer today, and were greeted with open arms. And Each couple took their time to say their lovingly constructed vows and to have wedding ceremonies. A photo hangs in my front hallway with a daily reminder of our two boys who stood to the side of the chancel, looking proudly, one of them in a gorgeous suit, (laughs) as we spoke about our deep commitment to one another and our ministers wove a beautiful ceremony with the love of our boys and the love of our church community. It was truly a sacred moment. There was so much spirit, reverence and joy that day, yet on the journey home to St. Paul, that legal marriage disappeared in the middle of some cornfield. Fortunately, we arrived at Unity Church Unitarian to a corner full of people from the community and from our choice church, and we had a glorious reception, including a gorgeous wedding cake live music and dancing. It was a day that was marked by what this faith can do to recognize and hold sacred the love that is in each congregation. This act was deeply important given that our state, the state of Minnesota, refuses to recognize our love and commitment. Those of us who worship together on Sundays have many ways to stay involved in this issue that can be just as profound as my Love Bus journey. Many of you participated in Twin Cities Pride events. Perhaps you marched in the parade or staffed an information booth. I was at General Assembly in Arizona over the Twin Cities Pride, but I hear you were as awesome as a field of yellow sunflowers as you march down Hennepin Avenue as a visible display of our faith. But please don't let that be all you do. First Universalist has been conducting trainings, filling phone campaign banks, holding celebrations, addressing equality from the pulpit, and I even read a story about a lemonade stand fundraiser for equality. Let each action you take be an avenue for you to focus on your own individual self, the path within your own heart and within your own mind. Then you need to share what's in your own heart and mind with others and listen. Listen carefully and lovingly to what is in theirs. I often return to the words of Dorothy Day, found in our hymnal. People say, what's the sense of our small effort? They cannot see that one brick that we must lay one brick at a time take one step at a time a pebble tossed into a pond ripples and spreads in all directions each one of our thoughts and words and deeds is like that the months leading up to november are going to be like a tumultuous sea that make each of us doubt our own personal agency the crushing waves of negative media, vote yes, bumper stickers and lawn signs may feel too overwhelming to withstand, but each of us, infused by our own faith, has the capacity to make a small effort, to lay a brick at a time, and to take one step towards equality. Research following a similar type of vote in California when Prop 8 was on the ballot showed that. One individual conversation can have a serious impact on how people vote on these type of ballot initiatives. Exit polls showed that 75% of people who knew someone who was LGBT but had not had a conversation voted in the wrong direction. The good news is that the opposite also held true. 75% of the people who knew someone who was LGBT and had a conversation about why it mattered voted for equality. A conversation was all it took. I actually believe you don't need to know somebody who's LGBT to care. I believe that actually just knowing someone who's willing to speak of the wholeness and the real loving relationships of LGBT people can be enough. Engaging with somebody who cares about this issue for any reason and who talks about why it matters can shift somebody who's homo-hesitant a little bit in their thinking. There will be more Conversations with People You Know workshops coming up in the months ahead here. We believe that conversations are the only way that we will have a positive impact on the outcome of this amendment. Actually, for those of you who haven't heard, the campaign's relying on people of faith to have 250,000 conversations prior to the election. If you know anybody in greater Minnesota, that's a critical area um, that's been identified as the place where we really need to start picking up the phone and having conversations, so consider that as well. I know it feels huge, but it's really quite achievable if we all say we'll do 10 to 20 phone calls over the next couple months. There are 99 days until the election, so you can pace yourself. Our campaign is looking to UUs who are supported by our conversations to stretch ourselves. I urge you to attend a workshop and learn if you've not already learned. I've seen rooms of people gradually come alive with energy as they hear each other's stories and as they begin to name their own stories. For an 80-year-old woman who attended an Episcopalian training in Afton, her story came alive when she was reflecting on the challenge of her young love of a man who won her heart. Yet her love was forbidden because he was of a different faith. I also think of a couple in Fridley whose daughter, her partner, and their grandchildren want to move back to Minnesota from Massachusetts but will not do so at the cost of losing their legal marriage. These are very real lives, and they're very real stories, illuminating the human cost of restrictions on marriage in the past and in the present. We need to connect with why we care about this issue personally because as the months progress, money is going to flow into this state and negative ads will impact public opinion and a large number of people will begin to be swayed if they don't have anybody else talking to them. The opinion of a valued co-worker, neighbor, family member, or friend can really make a difference in an issue like this. So what stories do you have inside you that might impact others. In winter 2011, UU World magazine, Zach Wald, shared his story of testifying in front of the Iowa chambers. I see that in our order of worship, we actually said that was Reverend Hardy's. The person right after we sang our fourth verse was Zach Wall's. Zach shared. Zach is a young man who's a UU from Iowa who was raised by two men, two two women. Sorry about that. We heard him in the montage of voices earlier. Zach wrote in the UU world about coming from a sideline observer to an active voice in the political process. He said, "After selfishly withholding my efforts in the fall, I now had another chance to contribute. At the risk of sounding overly dramatic, between the strings of suicide." by young gay men that sparked the It Gets Better campaign and the ousting of the Iowa justices, it was clear that now silence, no matter how busy I thought I was, was no longer an option. I was going to testify. His single testimony had over two million hits on YouTube. He was interviewed by newspapers, evening news shows, and on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. One young man, one story, simple words of truth and about love and family, and literally millions of people have been influenced. I doubt that many of our stories will go viral, but I want you to know that each story has significance and value on a very human level. Emily Eastwood, executive director of Reconciling Works, which was previously Lutherans Concerned of America, shared a story of a Lutheran church that was studying whether or not to become a welcoming congregation. The committee charged with this studying this matter was comprised of people on opposing sides of that continuum. A mother of a son son who was gay and a father who adamantly opposed changes in the church constantly created friction and discomfort whenever this committee met. Finally, the woman decided to meet with him outside of the committee in order to build a relationship. She asked him to join her for coffee and to bring some family pictures with him to share. When they met, the story says he came with a bag full of photos. She sat with him, engaging genuinely in stories about each photo, curious about who was in them and about their lives. When it was her turn, she pulled out one photo. It included her husband, herself, and their four children. She warmly spoke about each child, including her gay son. From that point on, the friction disappeared. They had come to know each other differently, more intimately, and shared what mattered most in their lives, their precious families. I want to reflect on that conversation just for one minute. The woman didn't come to the conversation with talking points, biblical interpretation resources or with facts on bullying because of perceived sexual preference. She didn't come equipped for a debate. She joined in conversation with genuine curiosity and openness to that which connected the two of them, to that which they shared, in this case, it was being a parent. She didn't have to say a lot of words to express that which was most dear to her. She didn't have to move into a contentious conversation about natural law or biblical text. Realize that sometimes the most precious conversations about marriage are are about people. They're not about facts. And they're about asking genuine questions of care and curiosity versus making a point. You're probably aware that in Minnesota there's 515 statutes that discriminate against same-sex couples. Words like next of kin, family, and spouse do not include same-sex couples in this state. These are profound inequalities. But yet, the reality is that we've learned that talking about rights are not as powerful as talking about love and commitment. After all, if you're a person who's coupled, do you remember thinking about rights as you pulled yourself towards the person you love? I certainly was not. I had no idea that the woman I confessed my love to on a rainy night in Santa Cruz, California, would eventually choose me to love and live with for over 24 years. Ask any couple how they met and fell in love, and you will usually hear a story that brings a sparkle or tears to their eyes, if you're me, I guess, and smiles to their faces. For many couples, the precious legal status of marriage is simply taken for granted, not worthy of storytelling. So connect with others about their stories of love, about stories of one another, about commitment. Connect with others about living in a state that honors all people—the man with his large bag full of photos and the woman with only one. So one final thought. Remember that early this fall, our airwaves will be filled with mean-spirited advertisements that will anger us, break our hearts, and weaken our hope. Our children and youth will hear comments in their schools and on their playgrounds. We will hear comments. We will hear comments in our places of work, in our neighborhood, and in our places of recreation. These campaigns have been known to increase the level of violence towards LGBT people regardless of their sexual orientation or relationship status. This church, this church will be a sanctuary for those who feel like the world is turning against them. May you provide warmth and be a shelter in a storm to those who are afraid, disillusioned, and heartbroken. This church, along with other UU churches and fellowships across Minnesota, are also working on a project to provide pastoral care and sanctuaries to individuals throughout the state who are feeling alone, feeling weary, and fearful, in the months ahead, we're calling it the Standing on the Side of Love Minnesota Project, and I'll be the central coordinator of the project as your ministerial intern next fall. So, love and commitment—that's what this Minnesota moment is about. It's about our core UU principles. What tells us that everyone in our beloved community, everyone, everyone in our beloved community and beyond, matters at a time when so many Minnesotans are struggling to provide for their families and build secure lives. I think it's unconscionable to spend political capital and desperately needed money in order to deny families like mine access to a societal institution which strengthens and supports our family. We Minnesotans can do so much better than that by standing on the side of love. I ask you to take time to reflect on what love and commitment means to you and to question if that looks any different for same-sex couples you know. I ask you to engage with those who are homo-hesitant and to listen. Find commonality in their stories and let them know why you personally care. Stand with me and move beyond the silence to find your own voice on this issue, to lift a brick to build a better tomorrow where everybody's love is sanctioned through legal recognition of marriage. May it be so, and amen.